ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. On. Hello. Hello, Zan. Welcome or, home from or sh- Japan. Should I say konnichiwa? Oh, yes. You learned some words <laughs> while you were away. That's good. There's some good memes on social media about that friend that went to Japan. I'm not going to be that person that all of a sudden starts talking, you know, <laughs> speaking um, Japanese every second. Saying arigato word. instead arigato. of thank you. Arigato gozaimasu. And uh, uh, I did learn a new one, though, this time. I found out that saying the Japanese uh, word for no, which is like technically translates to ie, um, is too harsh. You've got to say doji oh, really? So don't, no worries. Don't you be this. Don't no, no this. worries. So a bit gentler. So I was trying to, I was basically, you know, refining my Japanese slang. Um, yep. But mostly eating lots of food and drinking lots of $2 beers. It looked amazing. Like you went to these amazing woodlands where there was steam coming off water and it just looked incredible. That was wild. Yeah, that was in a place called Kamakochi, which is like a big national park in the Japanese Alps it's in central mm. Honshu, so sort of north of Mount Fuji. And I've never seen anything like that, Miff. It was like a, I was in a, a witching sort of hour. There's a good mist hovering over the top of a lake uh, about half an hour after torrential rain. And it's just phenomenal. But, yeah, a couple of weeks in Japan, that's where why we haven't had any bang on. I did get a couple of people um, messaging saying, where's bang on? It's like, didn't you listen to the last episode? Clearly you didn't listen yeah. to the end. <laughs> we uh, we do sometimes take holidays. I know, shocking. But we, um, we were here for, I think, around 45 to 50 episodes per year, but we do sometimes take a break and, yeah, it's a couple of weeks in Japan and um, having a little adventure. But I missed mm. you. What have you been I up to? I missed you too. Uh, no, I still, I still have more questions. Oh, okay. You were, you were hiking with bears. Have you seen, <laughs> like, this A blew my mind because it's my worst nightmare, but you didn't see any, did you? First, that's my first question. I didn't see any, but I definitely heard some. And one of the places Ooh. that I heard them, because... Everyone walks around with bear bells. And the other thing I'll say about hiking in Japan is I kept on seeing the way that people were kitted out as they wa- mm. wandered into the forest. And I was thinking, are they going on like a three-day hike overnight? Nah, they just love the kit. They all had the, the North kit. Face on, the two yeah. walking poles, the backpack for like a two-hour hike. They love the kit. <laughs> <laughs> so, And I'm there in like basically pyjama pants because it was so humid. I just needed to buy something yeah. that was the thinnest material ever. Um, mm. and, and like a, a shitty T-shirt and they're fully kitted out. But th- there were a lot of people with bear bells and I was thinking what to myself. What are bear bells? I've never heard of a bear bell. They're the most annoying sound you'll ever hear. It's literally like a little tinkly bell that they mm. just have attached to their backpack. So every time they walk, it's just a bell. So there's no, if you're walking near someone with bear bells, you're not hearing any birds or insects. You're just hearing ding, 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 oh, ding. No, that's like having a cat around the house all the time but out on a hike. Pretty much. But the bears there are black bears, not brown bears. They're smaller. They're not as mm. aggressive as what you'd usually expect in particularly like North America and Canada, those kind of big brown bears. But you still don't want to piss off a bear. If there's cubs nearby and they feel threatened, you don't want to piss off a bear. So I did see in one of the walks I went to, which was this beautiful shrine just outside of Nagano in the mountains, and it's this shrine that had three different areas and you basically kept on climbing up the hill and we were wanting to hike between the shrines and go up there to see these this avenue of more than 300 cedars, massive cedars that had been planted in the 17th century and were basically the 
you know, the gateway to the top shrine. And so I went there for more the trees than the shrine, but we wanted to go between each shrine and basically go off road. And I saw a big sign, which I posted on my Instagram. And for anybody who didn't translate it, it basically I got the Google Translate up and I was like, there's a bear sign and there's some big kanji letters. I wonder what it says. Infestation of bears. (gasps) (laughs) Which, you know, in translation, lots of bears. But then I, we were thinking about taking this path and then Jeff and I, who was, you know, my fellow I was travelling with, we just sort of stopped and had a listen and we could hear the cracking of branches from two distinct areas very close to where we were about to walk. I was like, that's <gasps> that's bears. That's, that's bears. bears. And no one not, else not is taking this bears. path. No, not panda not bears. Not panda bears. Little black bears. Oh, did you see that footage of the family in Mexico having a picnic <laughs> and that black bear climbed on the table? Yes. Like... <laughs> It can happen, Zan. Stay safe. Our bang babe lighter <laughs> alerted us to this. It again is one of those small black bears jumps on the picnic table, but you can see because the way that you act when you – I've never – have you ever encountered a bear in the wild? No, no. But, but, God, no. That's my, I don't think I would ever hike in the wild if there were bears. I'd be too terrified. But for some people it's kind of normal. Like I met some Canadians on this trip at Disneyland, and they're Canadians, so of course they had a chat because Canadians are the friendliest ever. Mm. I was asking them about the bear things. we'd just come from our hike, and they were like, yeah, when I played football in high school, bears would run across the field all the time. Oh, get out. Hey. So for some people it's a reality. <laughs> but you can see this Mexican family and they were doing the thing where they... Um, statues. Complete statues. But this poor mother, like the bear is on the picnic table in front of them, 10 centimetres away from them, oh. and it's just eaten up all the enchiladas and all the delicious Mexican food in front of them. And she's just cradled <laughs> the son's head to her chest and her hand over his eyes. And she's probably just like whispering to him, it's going to be okay. And then it pans, the bear moves down, and then there's the daughter there, and she's just a statue as well. It's like, don't move. That's what you have to do, don't you? Just have, if you come across a bear, that the whole thing is, which is never going to happen here in Australia, obviously, but for anyone who's travelling, if you come across a bear, do you just stay still? Is that it? I think it's different for black and brown bears, and this is the thing. I wasn't bear literate, so I didn't feel confident to go into the forest because you watch something like Alone and all the ones that are set on Vancouver Island, they're all like, hey, bear, hey, bear. So they're making noise. They're not being still. They're making Mm. noise and trying to scare it off. I don't know. I need some bear etiquette lessons. Yeah, anyone got any bear, any (laughs) bear expertise? Bear bear etiquette. Bear expertise. Bear expertise. Bear expertise. We would love to hear from you because no doubt there's somebody who listens because we've had a marine biologist. Surely we've got a bear specialist. Oh, we absolutely do. And they'll come through on the bang box, which you can now um, email us and message us straight from your ABC Listen app in case you missed it. We've had a few emails coming through. We're going to get to some of them later on in Bang On. We've got a lot to talk about. A lot's happened in the Um, last two weeks. It sure has, but I did tell you on the phone yesterday. It was a couple of days ago when we caught up on the phone. Um, I had an animal encounter as well in my new home (laughs) in Brisbane. I was late calling Zan back because I had the back door open because the dog comes in and out and it's a beautiful day and I hear all this kerfuffle going on. (laughs) And I I went into the lounge room and there was a freaking brush turkey, a huge bird. In my living room, in and I'm literally on the border of the city. 
in Brisbane. I'd, and there's two in the street and that's cool, but I didn't expect them to come into my house. And its foot was as big as my hand, like its claws. Its talons. As big as my hand. <laughs> and it was just, I couldn't get it out. It got caught behind the couch. It got caught in the glass. The dog was trying to help. It was a nightmare. It was chaos. It shat everywhere. Was Viv trying to hurt it out? Yeah, Viv was trying to just see if it was okay. But, of course, that, you know, and, a, and it's huge with big wings and the television was going to be knocked over. And, yeah, anyway, it was a disaster. How did it but, end up? I mean, I know, off. but for Bang Fam, how did it end up, Miss? Oh, it ended up in the third room of the house under a bookshelf, <laughs> which I had to finally get a door open, a window open, and kind of guide it because it got caught in a cushion and guide it via a stick to get it out. It felt awful, like, but it got out. And oh, hopefully it's okay. I think it's okay. It's, it's, it's a big enough bird to, you know, survive such a traumatic experience. But, my goodness, I think, I, I think I'm forever traumatised. You're living in the tropics now and this is the wildness coming into the cities as well. Mm. This is increasingly happening with food sources drying up, with climate change. All this is going to happen. This mm. brush turkey period of our lives has begun. <laughs> I love it. Me and the birds. <laughs> well, there is a bird update. I've got to say, one of mm. the many emails that we got was about peregrine falcons, but from somewhere different in Australia. There's a little teaser to keep you listening through Bang On Today. Music, art, life stuff. So many things have happened in the last two weeks. I mean, where do oh. we begin? I think one of the most devastating things that happened when I was overseas and which I texted you about immediately is love is dead. It's the love end of hashtag my Debs. Hugh Jackman and Deborah Lee Furness are calling it a day. This was a shock, wasn't it? Absolute shock. I, I mean, if they can't survive, who can, Zan? That's all I'm saying. Apparently lockdown did it for them, and I get that. I think a lot of people experienced uh, that whole thing where their partners basically drove them up the wall, and I think it doesn't matter how rich and how famous you are, that can happen. And I feel very sad because I, I feel like they're above all of that. But no, it's um, they're just like us, celebrities. They're just like us, Sam. <laughs> we through they the years. Toilet, they buy toilet paper. <laughs> oh, yeah, they're definitely shit. That's for sure. Yeah. We through the years have, um, I don't know when it began, but we've always loved Hugh and, and, and Deb. And, in fact, we've just, you know, sort of messaged each other here and there, hashtag mm. my Debs, when we wanted to make ourselves feel a bit better about life. So this feels like a real end of the year for us as well, Miff. Yeah. I mean, I what I'm saying is we're taking this heart. <laughs> Has anyone checked in on Miff and San about the end of this relationship? It's okay. We checked in on each other. It was, it was, it was an early message. You're in Japan. I was like, yeah, I, I'm up. I'm across this. It's, what are we – there's nothing we can do. She's, But she's your Debs because she contacted you on um, – on Twitter after you watched her amazing movie back from, from the 70s. Yeah. And um, I love that. I love that. She's bang fam. Let's just say she's bang fam. Yeah, if you are um, Deborah Lee Furness listening today, we, um, we, love so- we love you. We will always love you. We're sorry for this um, shift in life. Sounds like, you know, it was a mutual decision. But, um, yeah, yeah we, we're thinking of you. And I know that, that was probably your first thought when this all happened. I wonder what Miff and Sam think. <laughs> Obviously, let's just centre ourselves in this this narrative, real main character energy. That's right. Um, speaking We've got of, it. Speaking of main characters, a lot of them haven't been working or being written about as well because over the last five months, the writer's strike has been going on. And this week it has been... Well, called off. We still haven't got the full details, but it seems like after many days of negotiations, a new three-year contract with Hollywood Studios has won concessions on writers' payment, terms with streaming shows, and the use of AI. This is what they were chasing. And so they're expecting 
that late night and daytime TV shows are going to be returning to the air quickly. Um, the actors are still striking. And I think that one of the great things I saw around the discussion of this is that the um, Writers Guild of America uh, said that the solidarity of the actors, they wouldn't have been able to get this far without it. They needed that from SAG for them to stand up and stand by them to get this deal. So they were very appreciative of that. But the actors have got their own list of demands and they're still on strike. So who knows when all of these films and everything are going to return. But Mm. in the midst of all this, someone broke ranks, didn't they, Miff? Oh, well, th- th- someone who I thought could do no wrong and had done no wrong for such a long time, Drew Barrymore. We've talked about Drew here on Bang On and how uh, beloved she is and how she's really sort of, I guess, shown who she is outside of her acting gigs over the last couple of years. She's very much embraced herself wholeheartedly and she has her own talk show in America, which started out apparently, I mean, to be honest, I haven't seen much other than clips online, Mm. but apparently it wasn't amazing initially, but it became quite a place, especially during lockdowns and the pandemic, where people felt very safe to be able to talk about things that were very personal and she had a, a real way of being able to get those stories out, probably because of her own experiences in Hollywood and as an actor and as a woman in this industry. So she really carved a beautiful niche for herself. Mm. And I feel like what happened in the last two weeks has actually completely flipped the narrative for her and it was a terrible move. She basically decided that because her television show was quite successful during the pandemic in that it helped people have connection, she thought it would be okay to come back during the writer's strike and put her show back on television while everybody else is still striking. And sadly, it did not bode well for her at all. And in fact, I think it might have stuffed her career momentarily. Um, It was a really bad PR move. There was a video where she was crying and it was one of those classic celebrity videos where it looks really humble and she's in her pyjamas and no makeup and it just felt very staged and, and, and rightfully so. She was sort of dragged online given I think a pandemic was a very different thing to say we need you right now for your talk show and where the other is actually about people surviving and achieving the financial reward that they deserve for the work that they're doing. So I think it's a very different thing. She misread it completely and and I think it's kind of mucked up her career to a certain extent. Yeah, I wonder how much people's memories or short memories will will exist in this realm because it's true, drawing that line between a global pandemic and saying that, you know, she literally said, um, if we can go through a global pandemic and everything the world has experienced through 2020, why would this sideline us? It's like, well, maybe because people aren't able to uh, afford to live with the current situation, which is very different to her because, of course, she has a number of different deals. She's got cosmetic lines, perfume, eyewear, wine. (laughs) You know, she can... She can afford to support her staff as well through that. It's mm. not just her. She can actually keep things going um, and one of the rare people who can afford to wait out the strikes. And that's the solidarity bit... you need, isn't it, from the yeah. people in power to do that while you sort of go without any sort of wage for months and months. Yeah, it was, I think it was a it was a bad and, and ill-thought-out move on her part and I think she's going to regret it for a long time. I do love the celebrity apology video, though. Oh. I mean, we love to drag it. And, of course, Ashton Kutcher and, and Mila Kunis were part of that in a couple of weeks ago for much more uh, awful reasons. 
around the conviction and sentencing of their former co-actor on that 70s show, Danny Masterson, and everything that happened there. People, Bang Fan would have caught up on that. But, yeah, it's just, again, it's very, um, it is very staged, all these videos. But what do you do? What do you do in this situation? How tone deaf mm. can you be? How many people did that video for Drew Barrymore have to pass through and said, yeah, this is a good idea? Yeah. Like, it's just yeah. strange. I just felt well, so strange. With the Mila Kunis and, and Ashton Kutcher one too, it was revealed that they had a very sort of conservative-looking, rough-looking brick wall behind them and somebody took a photo of it on the side and in actual fact it was just the brick wall on the side of a beautiful building beside a majestic swimming pool on their gazillion-dollar property, you know. So it's this it's this tone of we are humble, we are simple people, we made a mistake and it's like you got a lot of advisors how did this happen? Because you've got a lot of money mm. and you don't make any manoeuvre without a lot of advice from a lot of people. How does this happen? And I think that's my question with Drew Barrymore. How on earth? She's a smart woman. How on earth did she not read the room with this one? She's been in the biz since she was five years old as well. That's exactly. kind of wild thing. She's been around people yeah. who are unionised actors who understand the power of this, been in the industry longer than most. So, yeah, a weird and disappointing flex. It's great to see that the writer's strike has worked for so many people who don't have the clout of Drew Barrymore, of other actors, of other writers, um, and, yeah, I guess we'll see what happens with the Screen Actors Guild as well. It's mm. like on a pu- purely like personal note, there's a lot of people that I want to chat to that just won't do any interviews because of these strikes. And I'm talking about like doing, you know, TV interviews and all that sort of stuff for, for future stuff. So it's really, um, yeah, it's kind of brought everything to a standstill. But that's how you get attention, isn't it? That's how you make change by mm. having that solidarity and having everyone get on board. And so... I think it's an amazing outcome for, for writers and creatives in, in America uh, and it'll be interesting to see what happens with the actors as well. Isn't it interesting? I was reading about what happened in Iceland many years ago when women were asking for equality, equal pay, and what happened was all the women of the country actually stopped doing everything mm. <laughs> and the country came to a standstill. Amazing. It is the way. It is absolutely the way. There's a lot of talk about that. Um, I hear that all the time, what would happen if we just stopped working. I didn't realise that Iceland had gone and done it. That is so yeah. good. <laughs> I know. I know. Look, I could have made that up. I think I read that. But anyway, we can look that up later. <laughs> I loved it, regardless if it's true or false. We're, we're in the post-truth age, so... Yeah, you don't come I'm to bang on for factual information. No. <laughs> well, clearly, remember our last podcast? Cooked, absolutely we cooked. We didn't know what, we got, what was going Who on. Who are we? Who are we? Speaking of equality as well, another story that dropped while we were off that we really, you know, wanted to address is the story of the co-founder of Rolling Stone magazine and one of the founders oh. of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, Jan Wenner, who has published a book and then done an interview, a new interview, very recently with the New York Times in which he basically dismissed female artists and artists of, of colour, talking mm. about how none of them were, in regards to women, None of them are, were articulate enough on this intellectual level and remarked that Joni Mitchell in particular was not a philosopher of rock and roll after it was revealed that all of the stories mm. that he'd chosen to highlight were all male and white, pale, male yeah. and stale. Um, oh. God, he really – it means – you do sort of see the, the foundations of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame Rolling Stone. It's not surprising, but still, this is a new interview and he said this shit. Like, what? I know, in 2023, look, let dinosaurs be dinosaurs, I say. They are digging their own 
uh, look, their own grave, essentially, and I think he did exactly that with his comments. But the book is also called The Masters, you know, oh, yeah. like, and that is also playing into that idea of the the male genius and that male genius is is not a person of colour, according to Yarn, and that is just absolutely abhorrent in in any day and age, let alone today, to think that and that women are not even worthy. Not one woman would be worthy of of being a master. But yeah, he's he's just an idiot, really, isn't he? I mean, <laughs> are we allowed to say that? Yeah, when he was when he was asked to explain it. You know, again, he just dug in deeper. He doesn't quite get it, or at least his perspective he feels is is a is a fair perspective. Which, you know, you can say it's the opinion of one person, but this is one person who's had a lot of power in their life mm-hmm. and has been a real gatekeeper in an age when Rolling Stone was at the top of the game. When he was talking about black artists, he says, "I suppose when you use a word as broad as masters." The fault is using that word. So he's acknowledging using that word. But then he goes on to say, maybe Marvin Gaye or Curtis Mayfield. Oh. I mean, they didn't just didn't articulate at that level. What's all this like articulate at this level? Like what what what, what does is, what does that mean? And what does it take it, for someone to to be worthy in his eyes? That just blew my mind when you think about all the incredible artists of colour and female artists through the ages who have profoundly impacted culture, profoundly impacted music, and he can't mm. even find one of them. It's just like he just likes people that look like him, it seems. That's right. And it explains a lot as to why things like, you know, the 50 best singers, the 50 greatest albums, why those lists are like they are and have been like they are and why change is so absolutely and utterly necessary because once you know the perspective that these lists come from, you you have to question why and how they existed in the first place. He's no longer part of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I think he's been removed from that organisation. They they have been, as we've talked about a lot, uh, there was that great Courtney Love op-ed that we spoke about a few months ago, but they've been trying to play catch-up on, like, hyperspeed in terms mm. of expanding what it means to be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, um, going broader with genre so you can include, you know, a more diverse group of artists. Uh, but, yeah, it's it's been a long time in the woods, hasn't it, and the percentages mm. are so low because it has been, um, again, so strangely delayed in their response given that all the other shifts that we've been through and an understanding of what non-male artists, non-white male artists give to the culture. It just seems like some of these, yeah, organisations are just so far behind. It's weird. Absolutely. Out of touch. Dinosaurs. Dinosaurs. Um, but while we're here, can we also lose the term master bedroom? Because <laughs> I've never about thought that. about that. Yeah. There we go. Here's a good thesis. Where... This is a good thesis topic. It's the master's domain, i.e. it's for the gentleman when he comes home and has his slippers popped on. Oh, my God, language is power, Miff. It's true. Yeah. Master bedroom. Yeah, master suite. Yeah, no, nah, time to go. In the bin. The Dictionary of Lost Words, which I banged on about a few weeks ago, had all of this. It was all the gendered yeah. language, all the things that people decide what belongs and what doesn't, what defines us, how we tell our story and who tells our story. And that's true. Mm-hmm. Master suite. In the bin. What would you call it? Bin. Oh, I don't know. Boss, boss, boss bedroom? Yeah, queen sleep zone. <laughs> <laughs> queen sleep zone. Yeah. 
Of course, the biggest story of the last couple of weeks in terms of pop culture has been the story of Russell Brand. I want to just give a little content warning here. We're going to talk mm. about sexual assault. This is potentially very triggering when you think about the statistics around uh, assault for women, and I'm sure many in our Bang Fam, this discussion could possibly be upsetting. So I just want to give you a chance to opt out. Um, you would have been across it. Three British news organisations have reported that comedian and social influencer Russell Brand has been accused of rape, sexual assault and abuse. And these are based on allegations from four women who knew him over a seven-year period at the height of his fame. This story broke in mid-September, less than two weeks ago. It had been in the works for four years. This mm. is something that had been researched and interrogated and we just heard about it, but it's been in the works for four years. Uh, there are allegations. Brand has denied all allegations and says that all of his relationships have been consensual. And the people behind this investigation are big mastheads like the Sunday Times, the Times and Channel 4 dispatches. The reports are really full on. One woman has alleged that Brand raped her in his LA home. Three others have accused him of sexual assault. One woman has alleged that Brand assaulted her during a three-month relationship while she was 16 and still at school. And we've seen in the fallout from this and the follow-up that lots more women are coming forward with their allegations of interactions with him, of abuse and assault and inappropriate workplace behaviour. It just keeps on rolling out. Mm. But there's been a really big conversation which is around, I guess, the times and the complicity of the yeah. the media through this period too, right? Well, that's the thing. Russell Brand came through a very established media in terms of working for BBC. Uh, he was on the radio. He was on various television channels. He was a writer, a very... Um, regular columnist for The Guardian for many, many years. He was guest editor of The Spectator. So he came through a conventional media and was supported by conventional media, the establishment, as he so now likes to call them, given he is now, I guess, a pillar of the independent media, which he set up over the last few years during the pandemic. And he is positing himself as anti-establishment, and yet he has come up through the establishment that supported him. So there is actually quite a bit of talk that, that Russell was aware that these convictions were coming and that he has very carefully planned a new career surrounded by a lot of people that don't believe in so-called mainstream thinking and will question these allegations because they're already in an environment of questioning the truth or, you know, questioning... Big Pharma, questioning established powers. I don't know if this is entirely the case, but it sounds like it could be highly likely. I'm not sure. A lot of people are speculating that he's very clever and this is exactly what he's done. He's always played the media in which he exists in order to be exactly who he wants to be. But what about and, that complicity of the media in, in mm. due course? Because I think that with this sort of stuff, you know, you... <laughs> In so many cases, you're like, oh, it was in plain sight. How did we not know? But when you look back and it's just been on repeat through news channels mm. and through reporting, all these little snippets, 
there was one particular story where one of the allegations that's come through in the follow-up is from an American employee who was working in the office where he was recording his BBC for radio show mm. and it was in America when he was recording it and he, just before he went on air, went into the women's toilets. She's alleged that he said, I'm going to have sex with you and she's freaked out because he's basically, you know, shut the door behind mm. him, trapped her. And then someone's knocked on the door and said, Russell, come on. They know he's in there. So they know mm. that he's gone into the women's toilets, which is inappropriate workplace behaviour or any any behaviour. Mm. And they've said, come out and and jump on air. And then there's a recording on air where he relays this exact experience and says exactly what he's done and everyone mm. laughs. And you see that time and time again where I was watching Media Watch on Monday night and they had a fantastic sort of deconstruction of the media's complicity in this and they yes. showed Liz Hayes from 60 Minutes doing an interview with him and he is kissing her without consent. He, You know, things that literally the Spanish Football Federation president has just been removed mm. for, things that are not appropriate, but then it was being laughed about. Being put in a room of eight single women in a commercial radio studio and this is a bit of a laugh with Samantha Armitage on the Sunrise show and kind of, you know, oh, he's being a bit horny and all that kind of stuff, or just mm. having a bit of a laugh. And this was not in the distant past. And so all of that stuff, we just sort of went green light. And it was a weird time, wasn't it, the 2000s it was. for sexual it was. politics? Because we've been through all of this, you know, third waves of, of feminism, and all of a sudden we're snapping back. And if you called out any of this, you were considered uptight. You were considered... Uptight, yeah. yeah. Angry, angry woman. Yeah, angry unfuckable. Woman, unfuckable. Exactly. Yeah. And, and, you know, that's your problem, not the problem of the person who's actually enacting that behaviour, which in this case allegedly was Russell Brand. And that whole lad culture that started in the 90s and the lads magazines, and I'm looking back on that time, we were definitely complicit too. We just thought we had to go along with it mm. because that was the culture, the dominant culture, and we've seen how that played out in the absolutely inappropriate treatment of somebody like Amy Winehouse, the way she was hounded by the media because it was okay to treat women like that within a media industry that, that was basically kind of setting, setting us up for a fall in a lot of ways. Um, damned if yeah, you do, damned if you don't. Yeah, I, I think back now and, yeah, we just laugh it off and... I wonder why, and I think it's because we weren't allowed to do anything else but. Rhiannon Lucy Coslett in The Guardian wrote, you know, which you've acknowledged, published Russell Brand and, and many of his mm. words um, in that period. They were also part of that, you know, complicit media organisation that gave him a voice, but she's spoken about this, and there's been a number of different opinion pieces, but she talked about that lad culture that looks even more hideous with with hindsight. And she talks Ooh. about that period, which I think for you and me, you know, we were in our sort of 20s and 30s going through the 2000s. We were out at clubs. She talks about, you know, being groped with hideous regularity and we just had to sort of laugh it off. Things Ooh. that we think now is like, oh, if someone did that, I'd be like, what the fuck are you doing? Get your hands off yeah. me. But it, I remember that feeling of being like, oh, don't, don't snap back because you'll be, you'll be called a bitch. You'll be called yeah. uptight. Like it was really ingrained and it was... I don't doubt that it was because 
there were so many green lights for that bad behaviour and so many people laughing about it. And if you didn't laugh about it, then what was your problem? Well, think about social media. Think about Facebook. That started because it was a whole bunch of dorm room guys rating the fuckability of other women. Mm. And, and that is like that is a, a pillar now of our our society in the way that we message and that is how it began and that was okay. Rhiannon said this in the piece and, and it was fantastic. Women's worth and value were determined by how fuckable they were perceived to be. There was truly no escape. I'm still running, wrote one woman. Oh, my God. One of the ways I found out about this story, because I was on holidays and I really tried to switch off in Japan and so I obviously wasn't watching news, I wasn't looking at news websites, but I did see a whole bunch of people at one stage sharing this tile that was a, a visual graph of people, just, you know, sort of blank canvas people, and it was the amount of people that made sexual assault and rape allegations and then it got smaller and smaller into the corner of people who were charged because of that people who are convicted and then people who are sentenced. And it gets smaller and smaller because one of the things that some people will say when these allegations come out is, why didn't you go to the police? And it's like, because the system mm. is stacked against women because convictions are rare in these cases. Um, and because often even if they do go to the police and follow through courts, which is an incredibly traumatic experience, that the outcome is not what they had hoped for. And Pragya Argwell, who wrote in Crikey um, about this a little bit, and it was a really decent piece, which I'll put in the the show notes as well. She's a behavioural and data scientist, and she's also just written a book called Hysterical, Exploding the Myth of Gendered Emotions, mm. and talks about, you know, how easy it is to fall prey to the myths of, you know, shame and guilt and this sort of culture of silence that exists around powerful men and not being feeling, you know, empowered yourself to speak up. And as a result of that, questioning your own testimony, questioning what sexual harassment is, questioning whether you're overreacting, all that sort of stuff. She makes this point, and this really struck a chord with me, women have been trained culturally and historically to be pleasant and not create discomfort for others. They're fearful of being seen as angry and vengeful. And these networks of silence and complicity have long protected men in power. We see it over and over again. So it's easy to see why women might be reluctant to come forward. But if we turn a blind eye towards such incidents and do not speak up, then we are all responsible. So that complicity doesn't just exist in the media. It exists in all of our reactions to all of this, mm. in those questions, which really rubs me the wrong way when people are like, why didn't they go to the police? That's such a loaded question when you think about it. Yeah. Think about why. Think about why. It's such an entitled question. Yeah. Hey, we've got a good fashion update in just a moment. Um, but before we get into that and our bang on, I just wanted to share with you some very wonderful little messages from our bang box because I caught up on a lot of emails, uh, as I have been, um, hundreds of which <laughs> waiting for you after uh, you come back from a couple of weeks' holidays. The, I, the bang box emails are the only ones you don't bulk delete, though. Exactly. Exactly. Like everything, all the work stuff go, I wasn't here for the last two weeks, gone. I do. But bang box, you go, no, I'll read those. Yeah, they're always so special. And thank you to everyone who takes the time to message us. We do, mm. I do read them all. I try to get back to as many people as I can. Uh, and, of course, I forward them all to That's you right. as well. <laughs> Which I did about the Peregrine Falcons because oh. your your faves in the Collins Street Peregrine Falcons have some some kin out west. There are some Perth Peregrine Falcons as well. 
That's right. We now have the Crawley Falcons, and this is not a live stream, but I suspect they might get one up in the near future, <laughs> given the interest. But the Peregrine Falcons in Melbourne have four eggs. We're waiting on four eggs now uh, to hatch. Should be in the next couple of weeks or so. But we now have the Crawley Falcons, which are on a balcony in Perth in Western Australia in a pot plant. Well, just a pot. There's no plant. It's just a bit of dirt. <laughs> Bit of dirt, and I We've think all been there. Like, that's right. They've given over the the pot to the bird, uh, the birds, I should say. They are a couple. There are three eggs, and there's just they're on Instagram. They're the Crawley Falcons, and there's just lots of photos of Mum looking at the cam- camera, going pretty much, "What the fuck are you looking at? <laughs> I'm busy." I'm busy nesting and I love it. I absolutely love it. Not ready for this glow up. Needs to put a call into the Collins Street Falcon. How do you handle your newfound fame? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Well, you often see her sitting on the nest or him and they just sort of quizzically look at the camera, I think. I I could be making them up. I'm absolutely anthropomorphising them. But um, I feel like they just know that there's something up. But this... This bird I reckon it's more Truman on... Show where they have no idea. Yeah. <laughs> this bird's just clearly behind the glass at someone's balcony, does not care one way or the other, has been going there on the regular for a while and just that's where they live now. And I love that. Not bothered. Not bothered by them. Obviously feel very safe. And um, they've got nice views, very good views <laughs> for Perth. Wouldn't mind living there. Although that balcony, you won't be able to use that for a long time because of the poo that goes everywhere because they're not very nice. They're not very neat. The old peregrine falcons, it just gets out the back and it's all over the place. Um, they're not a clean bird. I don't know if that's a thing with birds, but they're a dirty bird, I guess you could say. Your favourite kind. Dirty bird, but they're a beautiful bird. Well, they and knew... I'm, I'm very keen. I'm following and I'm loving it. Yeah, you, they knew exactly what they were doing, that Bang fan member, sending along the information about the Perth peregrine falcons. Got a lot of support for my obsession with um, sniffing my cat as well, Norman. Yeah. Um, a lot of people saying they also love to nuzzle their heads into the bellies of their kitty cats. So thank you for that. Um, thank you for not making mm. me feel like a creep. I have absolutely been going ham with Norman <laughs> since returning. He's shedding, though, because while I was away, mm. there was a bit of a heat wave and he's shedding like a mofo. So I'm just sneezing up a storm every time I bury my face in his belly because he's getting Aww. rid of all of his winter coat. Little mate, he's little cuddler. Beautiful boy. He is a beautiful boy. And one really great email from Catherine as well, which I wanted to share with the Bang fam because this brought me so much joy. We talk about the beauty of crop dusting not farts, but bang fam, no. whenever we are in the wild and wandering around and people who bang fam us. And you know it, bang fam. You know that we, we love to hear it. Just well, whisper it. Bang fam. Catherine emailed us on a whole nother level. She says, hi, Miff and Zan. I was driving home from my night shift this morning listening to your latest Bang On episode. It was raining and traffic slow during the Sydney peak hour trudge. So the perfect podcast to pick me up. Stopped at traffic lights. The driver beside me smiled and gestured for me to wind down my window. She pointed at my Apple Play screen, which was displaying the podcast logo, and yelled, Bang Fam! (laughs) We both cracked up and the light changed to green. Absolutely made my day. I am still smiling. Thank you, Catherine. That makes me so happy. Bang Fam in the wild, just connecting. So, so good. Oh, and you know what, too? Also, Bang Fam who drive really posh, smart cars, too, that obviously have those big displays <laughs> that only really, really new cars have. Good on you. You're killing it. We love you. I haven't even got one of them. Thank you, Catherine. And thank you to everyone who ever Bang Fams us in the wild. We love it. Absolutely love it. We do. Hey, can you believe it?
It is September, which means there are a lot of fashion weeks happening Ooh. all over the world. Before we get into Milan Fashion Week, where something pretty wild happened this week, the Venice Film Festival, also in Italy, had more than a handful of ideas going on. Miff, you know that I get worried when we talk about low-rise jeans and anything, cutouts, anything that exposes mm. parts of the body. What were you sending me this week? We're expected to get around in tiny short shorts now, are we? Not even short shorts. I'd say sports nicks that you used to wear under your netball skirt. Bloomers! Fashion! <laughs> Go find a pair that you've got in the back of the cupboard from a netball game you played, if you need, back in 1987. Here if you need. and Yeah, and pop them on uh, over a pair of stockings. Um, maybe not a thick, like I love an opaque. I live, I, my identity is opaque stockings pretty much. <laughs> but um, it looks like the fashion the, the is a little bit of a sheer, like a, like a, maybe a 30 denier if you can get that. Um, type or a 20 denier, like it's a little bit little bit sheer, a little bit 80s and just wear a pair of knickers over the top. Miu Miu are selling some Diamante ones for, goodness me, around $5,000. Oh, so okay. pick yourself up a pair of those and just go out in your knickers. That's it. <laughs> Simple. Straight up. No issues. and Or tiny, very, very tiny shorts. But I think the knickers is probably the most achievable if you've already got your sports knicks so it's from back in the day. Stockings, knickers, and then whatever on top, like maybe a jacket, a bolero, a blazer. Yeah. Whatever you like. Whatever you like. Mix <laughs> and match. And any kind of shoe too. It seems like we. it doesn't matter. I think I'm getting a lot of boot vibes with these knickers. Um, that always looks good. You look like you can wade through mud and... I don't know, dress for any occasion at the same time, just in your undies. So, I'm not doing this. I am. <laughs> Imagine that. Like just like just get me getting out there in my undies and, and stockings. Like no one needs that. But like why not? Why not? Why do, why do all the, you know, certain types have a certain amount of fun with that? I'm just going to get a, a big undie. At least they look like it's almost like you could get away with a big undie. A big undie and a stocking and a boot. Can I ask? uh, This is more, I mean, it's not exposed, but it does happen. So when I wear stockings, I don't like stockings um, falling down in the gusset, so I always wear bloomers. So I've been rocking this fashion look for ages. But someone once said to me, he's like, I can't believe you wear undies over your stockings. Like, do you do that? I feel like this is more common than people think. You wear bloomers over your stockings. You don't want to have the gusset dropping. You don't want to have a dropped gusset. You don't want to. <laughs> you don't want to drop gusset. No, you don't. And also, too, you get that extra double waistline. If it sags down, you've got your undie waistline, which is usually sort of above the hips. And then, if the stockings drop, you get another one. And, and look, there's enough lumps and bumps already. You don't need another one. And then you also get the yeah, the, the dropped gusset that hangs between the knees. Not fun. Not pleasant. Oh, so it's just one step away from me from ripping off my skirt or pants, probably a skirt, just do it. and just letting letting the uh, the bloomers fly free. Fashion is not just for the young. We've learnt that over the years. <laughs> it's, true. it's for all of us. Fashion is for everybody. Absolutely true. The other big thing that happened this week was the Milan Fashion Festival, and mm. there was one particular show which went viral. And I think yeah. that they meant to do that because this is someone who a Stockholm designer, Beat mm. Carlson, who apparently does a viral one, runaway show every year for Avavav. I've never heard of Avavav. I haven't either, but I do Avavav. now and I know them and I want to wear them. 
It feels like just, more of an art movement than fashion, but fashion I, is art, isn't it? It's a statement. It is, it is. And I like the fact that they're actually enjoying themselves. These models that are sent down the runway have been told to look like they're rushed, like they're not fully dressed, like they haven't got their bits on. One of them even comes out in a suit of post-it notes, which was, you know, not even any time to design something. I'll just make a suit out of post-it notes and send it on out. I think it's a comment on, you know, lack of time, fast fashion, uh, the lack of the lack of interest in anything that requires sort of deep thought and concentration given the the way that our society moves so quickly. And it was brilliant, like these models coming out from behind just going, what, what, and then throwing on a top or um, their clothes falling off them. It was it was really good. It was it was theatre. It was theatre. I think it was theatre. And it was... <laughs> And it was, it was politics. Fashion, it was, it was, it was fast. Fast fashion is true, though. That Ooh. that that urge to churn and burn, or that need to churn and burn, mm. the way the you know high street shops um, and big retailers basically rip what's happening and then just turn them around in in moments. That's just getting worse and worse. And of course, the wastage that goes on there. It was a great statement. Whether I would wear any of it, like the um, outfit that was just pinned at the sleeves and had "add back?" question mark at the on it, <laughs> or no time to design. No time to design is. Good. I quite like yeah. that. But yeah. I've, got, I've got friends who've worked in fashion before. I have a friend who used to have a label and she found it quite intense and, and eventually stopped doing it because it was a bit of a burnout. But the kind of lead time that she would have to get things sorted and to the manufacturer, it's like they're designing this stuff months in advance mm. only to have fast fashion, rip it off and turn it around for, you know, Zara and H&M and all the other high street sort of stores for bargain sheen or shine or whatever you call them, mm. bargain basement. And I can see why designers are, had a gut full of that, that they're protesting yeah. against that. Avavav. 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 Fashion. Fashion and theatre. It's been a big two weeks. It has been. And welcome back. I missed you. I missed you too. I um, There's lots we haven't covered, but we can't cover it all because um, it's a long podcast. <laughs> So yes. How long are we now? Quite long. Three hours. Thanks for yeah, being great. with us. What are you banging on about this week? Oh, this is so cute. I don't know if you've seen it or you, you watched it on your way over on the plane. It's a new TV series that's, I think, through HBO. So in Australia, it's on binge. Telemarketers. And it is a documentary that really harks back to some of those documentaries that were made in the 90s, Um, people on the ground who are part of an experience making a documentary about that experience, not necessarily by extremely professional filmmakers. So, you know, Werner Herzog has not made this documentary. It's been made by two guys, one who ended up becoming a film director of adverts and various other things and another fella, but they both worked in this call centre in America uh, in the 90s and he was filming their interactions and these call centres were absolutely wild because, you know, the type of people that would employ call centres were quite often people who couldn't get jobs elsewhere, i.e. first out of prison, you know, maybe had drug addictions. It was really fascinating early footage but then what emerged through the documentary, it's been taken on by the Safdie brothers, you know, the the two filmmakers. Yeah. This is the HBO connection I I suspect and and why it's got such broad viewing. But it really reminded me of those really earthy docos back in the day and these passionate people trying to 
find an answer, setting up a quest. And what they were looking for was the corruption within the call centre at the time. These uh, organisations were setting up these call centres full of these amazing people with really, you know, interesting and troublesome backgrounds. And yet what they were doing were asking these people to, to con Americans out of their money for a cause that wasn't necessarily legit. And they knew that then, but it kind of became real. And then the documentary is in three parts and um, one of the characters then becomes the interviewer and, and he's had a really difficult life as well. But it's lovely to see somebody wanting to make a difference to their own world, you know, and they're not professionals and they're not experts. But the guy who does the interviewing, Pat Pespas, I like it's just fascinating to watch him actually. Some people say it drops off and, and, and it doesn't really achieve its goals. But for me, it was the joy of watching people who felt the need to do something about something they probably thought they had very little control over mm. and expose something in America that is very corrupt and very dodgy. And although they didn't get a lot of answers, they still managed to expose that whole industry by nature of making this documentary. And it just, it just I don't know, it felt, it felt good to me to see something like this. I haven't seen something so unpolished and unproduced in such a long time and it just... Gave me the warm and fuzzies for, you know, I, I guess I've probably seen too many schmick docos of late and and this is the opposite of that and I kind of loved it, yeah. Unreal. Okay. Telemarketers on HBO, binge locally. Yep. Very good tip. Can I just say thank you as well for your tip on the Bee Gees doco? I oh. did watch it on the flight over and How loved it. How good is it? How good is it? I was just dancing in my little seat as we... Flew over Australia towards Tokyo. Ding, ding, yeah. ding, 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 but how good's their ding, history? Ding, ding. Like, and, and the I had no idea. And, breath and all of it. And it's, it's amazing. Yeah. It's, and pure joy. Love that about music documentaries because I think sometimes people assume that, you know, you and I have been working in music journalism for years, but I really didn't know that full story, the full breadth of that story from them being basically in a child band mm. until all these, as you say, these sort of, you know, second, third, fourth, fifth chances to, to hit it. Um, and, of course, the sadness of the, the twins dying, uh, yeah. Morris and, and, and Robin. But, yeah, it was a great doco. I loved it. I actually watched on the way back – the the Donna Summer doco as well that's <gasps> on the Qantas flights. I don't think it's on Binge locally. It's another HBO one. I, I could be wrong, but, um, oh, man, I watched it until the last 15 minutes and I can't find the last 15 minutes. <laughs> oh, no. But that was also really enlightening because Donna Summer, in the words of her own daughters, is like, we didn't really know who mum was. Like, she mm. was this kind of enigma. So... Again, that same sort of disco era, but from a very different perspective. Um, great doco if you want to want to dig into a bit of Donna Summer. Yep. That's not what I'm banging on about, though, today. I wanted to bang on about something that weirdly has ties into, I think, some of the cultural stuff we were talking about, about how people uh, perceived celebrity and various other things in the 90s and noughties and even the 80s as well, but also weirdly about the runway because I just devoured all four episodes of The Supermodels on Apple TV. was very excited when we saw this trailer when it was first released a couple of months ago. This is the story of Christy, Linda, Cindy and Naomi. And I say that because all of those names were just like Madonna, single names that you knew exactly who they were talking about. These were the supermodels of the 90s and late 80s and they came into their own and became 
really the first supermodels who had an amazing pulling power, who were able to charge a lot of money, who were able to choose the designers and the photographers that they uh, worked with, and of course went on to have careers that for some of them still continue to this day. It's just, it's not a flawless documentary. It felt like, you know how the Arnold doco, which I banged on about, um, mm. the Taylor Swift doco, you can tell all these docos have been made with the collaboration of the stars, the main people, and in that regard, it's going to be a little bit polished. There's certainly some claims made about what they did for modelling and world and world peace um, that I'm not sure are quite uh, quite legit, but I think that a lot of the stuff they talked about, particularly around Naomi Campbell's perception and the awful experiences that John Casablancas, who was the head of Elite Modeling Agency, who is Julian Casablancas's father mm. from The Strokes, in case anyone didn't know that, um, he basically was trying to undercut her and not pay her the same as white models. And she oh. called him out on it and he then put out stories saying she was very difficult. And this created this mythology that Naomi Campbell was was difficult um, and yeah. hard to work with. Which difficult black plays, woman. Plays into that trope mm. yeah. of which is used against black women who stand up for themselves yeah. as difficult and it's just awful. Yeah. Christy Turlington had a really interesting life. Cindy Crawford, I feel like I know the most about just because she's been so much part of pop culture and kind of interesting thing. Being remembering that she dated Richard Gere, um, I'd forgotten about that. Mm-hmm. But also Linda Evangelista, who I found her story quite um, heartbreaking. She's been through a lot of different things, a very abusive relationship with another, the other head of Elite Modelling uh, Agency. Oh, and they sound like a great bunch, don't they? Goodness me. Yeah. What an awful, <laughs> awful environment. But there was also a lot of joy in this, and as a you know, as a as a documentary series, it look it's just sumptuous to look at because it's capturing this moment that you know, if you, if you're Gen X like us, we grew up in this world. We grew up watching Christy Tellington head up that Calvin Klein campaign. Um, we saw them walking the catwalk. We saw them on that amazing video for George Michael, Freedom 90, where he wasn't appearing in any videos himself. Mm. He said, I want to get you guys all to appear in it. This, these were icons, regardless of what you think about how they made us feel about ourselves. That's a whole other conversation and we're already tipping into a very long podcast. It's a really fascinating four-part documentary series and I think it captures a culture at a time where fashion went from something that was very closed and high-end and it was very hard to get into these rooms to something where Isaac Mizrahi is collaborating with Target and various Mm. people are um, opening the gates to make it feel like we can all have a part in fashion. And the supermodels enable part of that gateway as well because they were so part of the fabric of pop culture. So if you love fashion documentaries, as I will watch any fashion documentary, Mm. um, it's really fascinating and and some of the stories that that you hear in this are really – you know, shocking and devastating, but also beautiful as well. So, yeah, I loved it. I cannot wait to watch this. I'm dying. You're going to love this, Miff. Yeah. But I can't wait to debrief with you on it as well when you do because, yeah. All right. It's not perfect, but um, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it very much. We're done. We did it. We're back. Three hours later. <laughs> 74 hours. It's Missed it's our bang fam, though. Yeah. Well, a lot happened. Yeah. In the last couple of weeks. It's been big. Yeah, it's been big. It's always lots of stuff. And we're here for you. We're always here for you. Music, art, life stuff, everything else in between. Falcons. 
crop dusting, whatever you need, we're here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> see, you, see you next week. See you next week. Bye, babs. Bang. Hang on. Hey, Zan, guess what? What? You're mad and I'm not. Um, <laughs> no. <laughs> Did you know that the golden couple of news, they are back and so are the 80s perms and boxy Ford Falcons of a particular television show that we know and love. Oh, my God, this is a dream for you. We have been loving the new season of The Newsreader on ABC TV and iView. And what's even better is that... Pop culture fiends like us can unpack and debrief on all the TV episodes on the official Newsreader Companion podcast. Oh, my God. I love that there's a podcast. And guess what? It's hosted by two of our faves, Lisa Miller and Lee Sales, who were, we'll say they were baby journos themselves back in the 80s newsroom. So I'm sure they've actually got lots of knowledge of that time to impart. And also lots of sharing of bad hairstyles. Did you know that they've actually been besties for nearly 30 years in real life? I had no idea, but of course. I mean, it's a small business and if they did start in the 80s, there wouldn't have been a lot of women in newsrooms back mm-hmm. in those days too. So, of course they are. They're going to give us an access all areas pass to spicy on-set gossip. I don't know where they get that gossip. They're obviously <laughs> just hanging out, uh, watching. Never before heard stories from the writer's room and the inside rail on the real-life news events that inspired the series. How's that? So good. You can binge all of the episodes of The Newsreader right now on ABC iView. Then head to the ABC Listen app to meet the stars of the show. You can hear Lisa and Lee chat with the creators and dive deep episode by episode into the nostalgic, beautiful 1980s world of The Newsreader. Now, excuse me, I've just got to take a call on my car phone. (laughs) I'm off to get my perm.